us to see that today, even as we go to your word. Thank you for the opportunity we've had so far to be together, to sing, to uh, fellowship. Would you continue to bless our time and glorify your name this morning? And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we all agree on one thing? Visionary literature in the Bible is hard to understand. This morning we're entering the heart of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 is recognized by all as the centerpiece of the book, both literarily and theologically. We'll get the setting before us in just a few minutes, but let me, take a, let me make a couple of introductory remarks about how we're going to approach this difficult passage First, we'll be looking at this chapter for the next three weeks, including today. This morning, I will seek to provide an overview of sorts, and we'll make sure we get the main message of the chapter. The main point of chapter 7, we could summarize this way. God rules over the beastly kingdoms of the world, and he will judge the wicked and establish his kingdom for his people through the Son of Man even as persecution of God's people increases. Second, for today's message, I'm going to avoid most of the controversial or debated parts of the passage. Next Sunday, we'll approach the fourth beast and the little horn and wade into the weeds of debate, while at the same time hoping to get at a clear understanding of the vision. For this, we'll be exploring a lot of other scripture, as well as considering a bit of history outside of scripture along the way. Then on Easter Sunday, we'll hone in on the central and most important part of the vision, the heavenly throne room and the arrival of the one like a son of man. We will see how fitting it is to celebrate the victorious coming of the son of man on Easter Sunday. Third and finally, I... I've worked hard to understand the ins and outs of this passage as it stands in Daniel. I've worked hard to fit my understanding of the passage with other scripture. I've worked hard to understand the fulfillments of this prophetic vision. I do not pretend, however, to kid myself into thinking that I will say the last word or provide the definitive treatment of this passage over the next few weeks. I believe my understanding is coherent and fits with the words of Scripture, and I will seek to persuade you to see things the way I do. But let me remind each and every one of us, including myself, we are individually responsible for our understanding of Scripture. I am accountable to God for how I understand His Word, and so are you. I hope you'll listen and consider carefully, but may the text of Scripture hold its sway over all of us. If you don't see the pieces fitting together the way I do, that's okay. Be patient with me. I promise I will be patient with you. Many of you know why I'm saying these things, but I'll seek to be as plain and clear as I can. When it comes to the fulfillment of this prophetic vision on key points, I see things differently than most of you probably have been taught before. On key points, I disagree with popular Bible teachers such as John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Chip Ingram, David Jeremiah, and others you may have heard on the radio. These differences will become plainer and more frequent as we continue through the book of Daniel from here on out. 
our disagreements are not because of any difference of belief about the authority, inerrancy, or infallibility of the Scriptures. As I hope will become clear, our differences come because there are genuine difficulties, ambiguities in the text itself. This passage is hard. So, without further ado, I'd like to read the whole passage first. My exposition this morning will focus primarily on verses 1 to 7, 15 to 23, and verse 28. But let's get the whole thing in front of us. So if you have a Bible, follow along. These, this opening reading will not be up on the screen for you, so pull it up on your phone or open a good old-fashioned paper copy. And let's read Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, a horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom... Ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. I want to begin at the end for just a moment and consider the impact of the vision on Daniel as he records it in verse 28. He was disturbed and sickened by the vision. We'll see Daniel the prophet having similar reactions to his visions throughout the rest of the book. Here it's unclear whether he understands the vision's meaning. For later visions, it will be clear that Daniel does not understand. The one whom God used to interpret the visions and dreams of of pagan kings, mysterious messages given to pagan kings, is not given direct insight into the meaning of his own visions. Daniel testified to the pagan kings that he did not have the ability to interpret dreams. Rather, he trusted God to provide the interpretations when they were needed. But for Daniel's own dreams, he will require the assistance of angels. And even with that assistance, he still won't always understand. I draw our attention to this fact just to temper our expectations of being able to fully understand these visions ourselves. We do have a couple of things Daniel didn't have, however... We have the Holy Spirit living in us as Christians who enables us to gain understanding of what's been recorded in Scripture. We also have the benefit of historical hindsight. Some of Daniel's visions have been fulfilled in history, and we can analyze the details with hindsight. And for some of the details, at least, we have Spirit-inspired scriptural comment on the fulfillment of these things. 
Nevertheless, feel Daniel's discomfort. Now let's back up and consider the setting of the vision in verse 1. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but when we readers come to chapter 7, we've got to remember that the chronology has shifted. We're actually jumping back about 15 years to about 553 B.C., the year the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar made his son, Belshazzar, vice-regent of the Babylonian empire. This is an interesting fact to know because this may provide a rationale of sorts for why God delivered this message to Daniel right at this point. As we'll see, the main feature of the dream is a son becoming vice-regent of a kingdom. To spoil the ending, we see in this chapter God the Father naming his son vice-regent over all things and all people. Seeing that historical reality unfold before his eyes with Nabonidus and Belshazzar might have provided Daniel a little insight into the meaning of what he sees in the vision. We should also recall that this chapter is written in Aramaic. Daniel started writing this book in Hebrew back in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 he switched to writing in Aramaic, and he's been writing in Aramaic ever since. And he'll return to writing in Hebrew in chapter 8 through the end of the book. Recognizing this language shift, we can see the complex structure of the book as outlined on the next slide. You can put that up there for us. Chapter 7 does double duty as the conclusion to the Aramaic section and the introduction to Daniel's visions. Daniel has composed the Aramaic section with these parallels so that the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, recorded back in chapter 2, lines up with Daniel's vision in chapter 7, and their contents and meaning are similar. I want to take a moment and provide some comparison and contrast between those two visions, however. Both visions depict four kingdoms, which are replaced by a fifth kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar's dream depicted the four kingdoms as metals in a massive statue. Daniel's vision depicts the four kingdoms as beasts. The difference may have to do with the perspective reflected in each vision. For the pagan king, God chose to communicate in such a way that would line up with the king's values and the king's understanding of human kingship and empire building. The kings and kingdoms are unified in a pagan idol, reflecting the idolatry inherent in all human kingdoms, which would have been a good thing from the pagan perspective. But to Daniel, God communicates the divine perspective. The kings and kingdoms of history are like aggressive beasts, and the fourth kingdom in the vision is a horrific monster, unlike any known animals on earth. In both chapter 2 and chapter 7, God's sovereignty over human kingdoms is emphasized. In chapter 7, the passive voice is used to bring this out, what is often called the divine passive, using the passive voice to point to God's action without stating it outright. You can see this with the first beast in verse 4. We'll line these up on, the, up on the screen if you want to look at these together. Verse 4, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up and made to stand and the mind of a man was given to it all by God. The second beast in verse 5, it was raised up on one side and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. God is the one who elevated one side and gave the command to get up 
and eat more. Third, for the third beast in verse 6, dominion was given to it by God. We see the same feature in verses 11 and 12 then. The beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, all by God. Then with reference to the little horn's war against the saints in verse 25, they shall be given into his hand. Likewise, the judgment of the king represented by the little horn in verse 26, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. All those passive verse voice verbs refer to God's sovereign action. God is, as always, the main actor. Now, a contrast to note between chapter 2 and chapter 7 has to do with the depiction of the fourth kingdom. I, like most students of Scripture, believe that chapter 2 and chapter 7 depict the same sequence of four historical kingdoms. And I believe the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. In chapter 2, the fourth kingdom's weakness was highlighted with the mixture of iron and clay in the feet. But in Daniel's vision of chapter 7, the fourth kingdom's strength and ferocity are emphasized. So the fourth kingdom, which is only important because it provides the historical context for the arrival of God's kingdom, is viewed from different perspectives. In chapter 2, its weakness is highlighted, but not much else is said about it. And then in chapter 7, Daniel wants to know more about this fourth kingdom, and he is granted some extra information. So we should expect that chapter 7 will tell us more than chapter 2, not just repeat the same things, but say more. One final contrast to notice, the way God's kingdom is depicted. In chapter 2, God's kingdom is depicted as a small stone that utterly destroys the giant metallic statue. That's surprising, shocking even. In chapter 7, the arrival of God's kingdom is illustrated by the arrival of a single human being. That, that a single human being could be the cause of the judgment of these beasts at one level is just as surprising. Consider who wins between man versus lion, man versus bear, man versus leopard, or man versus supernatural monster. However, biblically speaking, this is exactly what should happen. Part of what's being depicted here is how wrong the world has become since the fall. The four beasts reflect fallen humanity's rule of this world. But in Genesis 1, God granted ruling authority to humanity over all beasts. God commanded Adam and Eve together in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were said to be God's vice-regents ruling over this world. How did they fall? Instead of exercising dominion over the animals of the world, they obeyed the one that spoke to them. From that time on, human expression of authority has been twisted and broken, monstrous even. Thus the vision is depicting a human being taking his rightful role as vice-regent to rule over this world 
forever. Now, as we begin to look at the details, let's consider a possible key to understanding this vision, the correlation of heaven and earth. We've read the chapter, which is made up of Daniel's description of what he saw in the vision and an angel's interpretation of what Daniel saw. We will need to pay close attention to the angel's explanation and follow his lead for understanding the details. However, there is a feature of visionary literature that is often overlooked, but that is very relevant to this particular chapter. Sometimes a vision depicts something going on in heaven and also something happening on earth. A helpful question to ask is, what's the relationship between the two things? The other day, while I was writing this sermon, I was watching Eliana play with her toys. She was running around the room, organizing toy food on the coffee table. As I was watching her, I also saw Tamara moving furniture around and cleaning up other areas of the room. Now, those two things were happening at the same time. But I can't describe both of those things simultaneously. I have to describe them to you one at a time, in sequence. I can clue you in that they were happening at the same time, but you can't hear about them happening at the same time. You have to receive my retelling of what happened in sequence. Something like that appears to be happening with Daniel here. He's seeing two things happening all at once. He does clue us into this, but our English Bibles don't always bring this out consistently. Daniel uses one specific phrase nine times throughout the passage. We see it first in verse 2. The ESV and most of our Bibles just say, I saw, but the phrase is exactly the same as we find again in verse 4, as I looked. It's a very interesting phrase in Aramaic, and reading the whole chapter out loud in Aramaic, you hear it repeated, almost like it's punctuating the whole passage. There's a rhythm to it, almost. A more literal translation of the phrase would be, as I was looking, as I was looking. Then Daniel uses the phrase, in the night visions, to draw attention to the things he wants to emphasize, namely the fourth beast and the arrival of the one like a son of man. But the the key thing to notice is that verses 9 and 10 are introduced with the words, as I was looking. And then in verse 11, he indicates that while he was seeing the heavenly vision, the heavenly throne room, he was still hearing the great words of the little horn. So the key point to recognize here is that the heavenly reality being depicted here overlaps with the earthly reality associated with the little horn's activities. Now let's consider some of the details. First we can look at Daniel's description of the beasts, verses 2 through 7. First we have to notice the backdrop of the vision in verse 2. Daniel saw winds swirling from every direction, a wild hurricane stirring up the great sea. For Daniel that would have been the Mediterranean Sea, But more importantly, the sea has symbolic associations with chaos, seemingly untamable power, destructive danger for human beings. And ultimately, the sea becomes an image for the mass of fallen sinful humanity. 
Daniel could have made this association when he saw it in his vision because of his knowledge of Isaiah 57.20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. In the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of the new creation, and he observes in awe in Revelation 21.1, and the sea was no more. The reason it's such good news that there is no sea on the new earth is not because there will be no bodies of water on the planet, which I highly doubt is the communicated reality there. Rather, all the negative connotations that the sea had for ancient people will be no more in the new creation. No more chaos, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more danger or threat. Daniel, by contrast, sees wicked beasts come up out of the wicked sea. Look again at verses 3 to 7. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear... It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So the first three beasts that Daniel sees are like animals that Daniel knows. A lion, a bear, and a leopard. This particular trio of animals, however, would have probably drawn Daniel's mind to his Bible. In an announcement of judgment against the northern kingdom Israel through the prophet Hosea, Yahweh had said in Hosea 13, 7 and 8, So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Thus, Daniel's initial thoughts upon seeing these grotesque distortions of a lion, a bear, and a leopard would have perhaps turned to God's usage of foreign nations to judge and punish God's people. Moreover, notice that each of the first three beasts, though somewhat like animals Daniel could identify in nature, each of them is carnivorous. And the first and the third are what we could call hybrids, Land animals with bird wings, that hybrid nature in particular, not to mention their carnivorous nature, would have made them unclean, unclean abominations to the Jews and thus to Daniel. With the first beast, having eagle's wings plucked off by God, being made to stand upright by God and receiving a human mind from God, it's hard to imagine that Daniel would not have been reminded of King Nebuchadnezzar's experience of being restored to power over the Babylonian Empire after God's judgment of him for his pride. 
With the second beast, we notice the unevenness of the bear. Daniel describes it as propped up on one side in some way. And then a voice, presumably God's, commands the bear to continue devouring much flesh. Then the four-headed, four-winged leopard doesn't get any elaboration other than that God grants dominion to it, which already hints at the truth that these beasts refer to kings and kingdoms. The fourth beast is unlike anything Daniel knows from nature. He has nothing in his experience or knowledge to compare it with. Daniel notes its distinction from the other three beasts. Namely, it has horns. The first three beasts did not have horns, but the fourth beast has ten horns. Now, I'm going to briefly summarize what Daniel describes through the rest of verses 8 to 14. We'll look more closely at the details of those verses over the next couple of weeks. So as Daniel focuses in on these horns, he observes an eleventh horn, described as little, coming up, and then God ripping up three of the original horns. The eleventh horn is weird. It's got human eyes and a loud human mouth. Apparently, Daniel heard what the horn's mouth was saying, but he did not record that for us. While the horn was speaking, Daniel's attention is diverted to a heavenly scene. Daniel sees God sitting on his throne in heaven, preparing to announce a verdict of some kind. Then Daniel shifts his description back to the little horn's speaking. Suddenly, Daniel sees the fourth beast being slaughtered and its carcass being burned. But then in verse 12, he parenthetically backs up to describe what had happened to the first beasts, the first three beasts. All we need to notice right now is that they are treated somehow differently than the fourth beast. Rather than being destroyed, God removes their authority, but allows them to keep on living. Then Daniel returns his gaze to the heavenly scene where he sees a human riding the clouds. This would have been shocking. In all of the ancient world and everywhere in the Bible, everywhere else in the Bible, only gods ride clouds. We have here a figure that Daniel can only describe as looking like a human, but acting like God. I hope you can appreciate how difficult all of this would have been for Daniel to process. He's got no categories for much of what he sees in this vision. This human approaches God, sitting on his throne, sitting on his judgment seat, and God grants universal and eternal dominion to him. The sovereignty that is repeatedly been ascribed to God and to God alone throughout the book of Daniel is here being handed over to a, he- a human being. To understand what's going on in these crucial verses, the most important in the chapter, we must wait until Easter to explore in detail. Now let's press on into verses 15 to 18 and pick up Daniel's initial response and his request for help. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Anxious and alarmed, fearful and disturbed. The prophet is overwhelmed by what he has seen and he doesn't understand the message. So just as sometimes you and I actively participate in our dreams, so Daniel is a participant in this vision. He asks one of the angels standing around the throne in heaven to explain what he just saw. Verses 17 and 18 provide the angel's summary statement, and it provides us with the main message of this chapter. The four beasts that Daniel saw come up out of the sea represent four kings that arise from the earth. Notice that the angel doesn't specify which kings the beasts represent throughout the chapter. Thus, we step into the realm of speculation when we seek to specify. Nevertheless, given the larger context of the book of Daniel and with support from history, we can pretty confidently line the four beasts up with the four kingdoms represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2. And there are clues in the descriptions of the first three beasts that can be recognized to support our historical speculations. The first king is Nebuchadnezzar. And as will become clear with the fourth kingdom, the beasts represent not merely a single king, but the entire empire that each king represents. As we saw earlier, the eagle's wings being plucked from the lion's back could have been a hint Daniel would have recognized connecting it with the Babylonian king and his empire. The second king is probably Cyrus or Darius the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. The lopsided nature of the bear could reflect the elevation of the Persian kingdom under Cyrus's rule, becoming dominant in its partnership with the Median kingdom. When Daniel sees this vision, historically, the merger between the Median and the Persian uh, uh, empires was already developing. And in about a decade, Cyrus would lead the Medo-Persian armies in to conquer Babylon. The ribs in the bear's mouth could represent the nations that had already been conquered by Daniel's day, and God's command to the bear to devour more flesh could represent God's intent that the Medo-Persian Empire would continue its expansion, including overcoming the Babylonian Empire. The third king is probably Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. The speed of a leopard would be multiplied with four wings, And having four heads could indicate its ability to move rapidly in all directions, thus symbolizing the speedy conquest of Alexander, establishing an empire geographically more extensive in every direction than any previous empire. When Daniel asks about the fourth beast, the angel explains it in terms of a kingdom rather than a single king. Given the historical progression and given the parallel with the statue of chapter 2, which Daniel might have noticed in the unusual iron teeth of the beast, were probably on solid ground to say that the fourth kingdom is the historical Roman Empire. Understandably, Daniel wants to know more about this fourth kingdom, and if commentaries throughout history are any indication, so does everybody. But before we look at what the angel says about the fourth kingdom, notice again verse 18. The true focus of the vision and its meaning the positive message of the vision 
is that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. How emphatic! Where Daniel had seen one like a son of man, a single human figure, approaching the throne of God in heaven, here the angel speaks of the saints, God's people on earth. Curious. On Easter Sunday, we'll flesh that out more. Testing your patience today. Now let's review Daniel's extra description of the fourth beast and the angel's comments regarding this fourth kingdom in verses 19 to 23. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. So Daniel adds a detail to his description of the fourth beast. He mentions for the first time claws of bronze. Then he adds an assessment of the little horn that he hadn't mentioned earlier. At the end of verse 20, he says that this little horn seemed greater than its companions. It's little, but it seemed, to Daniel's perception, greater in some unspecified way than the other horns. Note also that Daniel describes what happened to the three horns differently than he did at first. Back in verse 8, he had said that as the little horn came up, three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, using the passive voice, probably to indicate God's uprooting of these horns. Now in verse 20, he simply says that the three horns fell in the presence of the little horn. More on that next week. But the most important addition is in verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Daniel's initial description of the little horn focused on its loud-mouthed boasting. But here, he indicates that he also saw this little horn somehow successfully assaulting the saints. I want to belabor this point for just a moment. Up to this point, Daniel has not mentioned that he saw the saints. God's holy people in this vision. The angel was the first one to mention the saints in verse 18. It's almost as though when the angel mentions the saints, Daniel gets to sort of rewind the tape or back up the vision and get a second look. And now he notices the presence of the saints in the vision. Or there's something else going on. Daniel had seen the arrival of one like a son of man who then received ruling authority from God in heaven. But the angel didn't refer directly to one like a son of man. Where we'd expect him to mention this figure, instead, he speaks of the saints. We'll wrestle further with this connection in two weeks on Easter Sunday. But it does seem 
from Daniel's comment in verse 21 that he did, in fact, see the saints in distinction from the one like a son of man in his vision. And he saw the little horn warring against them on earth. But this warfare has a specified end date, a time limit. The warfare that Daniel saw in the vision only continued, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So Daniel has taken the angel's explanation from verse 18 and understood the significance of the one like a son of man receiving the eternal kingdom of God as being a judgment, a verdict pronounced for the saints. We'll tease out the significance of these things over the next couple of weeks. For now, let's consider what further information the angel provides about the fourth kingdom, and then we'll close our time together this morning considering some application of the big picture we've sketched out so far. Hear again the words of the angel in verse 23. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. The angel doesn't really add much to our understanding of the fourth beast. He does specify that it refers to a fourth kingdom without focusing on a specific king until we get down to the horns. And contrasting it as different from all the kingdoms leads us to our proper understanding that the previous three beasts were not merely representing individual kings, but also their kingdoms, their empires that would endure long after the particular kings were dead and gone. But I want to focus our attention on one point that has relevance for our larger biblical understanding of end times theology. Notice that the angel says, It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. First, we should recognize that the angel is still using beastly metaphor to describe the actions of the fourth kingdom. He's not interpreting the metaphor. Devouring, trampling, and shattering is not a literal description of what the fourth kingdom will do to the whole earth. Second, The reference to the whole earth should also be taken as a figure of speech. We should not conclude from this reference that the fourth kingdom will be a global empire, or as is often suggested, that the Bible teaches that there will be a one-world government at the end of history, ruled by a figure the Bible refers to as Antichrist. We'll talk more about that next week. The phrase, the whole earth is the same exact phrase we saw in Daniel 2.39, referring to the third kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, which Daniel said there will rule over all the earth. Historically, we know that this was not literally true. Now, this is also a phrase we saw in Daniel 2.35, speaking of the, one, the stone that struck the image, which became a great mountain and filled the whole earth knowing that that is God's eternal kingdom, we can indeed take that literally. Let me say one more thing about this fourth kingdom as it's described here. This goes back to something we saw earlier, how Daniel might have recognized the prophetic words of Hosea in the background of this vision, which would have helped him see that the rise of these four kingdoms and all their beastly violence is ultimately the work of God, pouring out His wrath against sinful humanity 
using one nation to judge and punish other nations, including and especially his own people. The image of devouring the whole earth is used several times in the prophets to describe God pouring out his wrath, God's judgment against sinful people. The very judgment of Judah through the Babylon is described with this language in Jeremiah 8, 16 and 17. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. And that phrase, the whole land, is the same exact phrase translated the whole earth in other places. But here it's clearly directed against the land of Judah. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares Yahweh. But the prophet Zephaniah pushes the point further and universalizes the message using the same image of devouring the whole earth. And I'm pretty sure Daniel would have known the words of Zephaniah as well. Consider Zephaniah 1.18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of Yahweh. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Same word as devoured. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel must have understood the angel's words as an outworking of God's judgment through this fourth kingdom, not just on Judah, but on other nations as well. But of course, the vision reveals God's judgment of the fourth kingdom as well. Just as God had used Babylon to bring judgment against the wicked Jews, and then God used the Medes and Persians to bring judgment against the wicked Babylonians, so also God would use the Romans to continue holding the Jews under his judgment and also execute historical judgments against other nations. This is the way God works through the movements of nations and political powers in this world. Next week, we'll take a closer look at the horns of this fourth beast and we'll consider how the book of Revelation reuses Daniel's vision and what it all might mean. But to close this morning, let's consider how we must follow the way of the Son of Man and not the way of the beasts. The world around us is quite beastly, wouldn't you agree? No nation or people group in history has lived out the calling of Adam to be fully human, representing God's rule in this world. Many individuals and groups of people have exercised dominion, have attained and utilized power in the world, but none has done so the way God designed. Some nations, like ours, have had just laws on paper. Some nations, like ours, have sought to define good and evil according to God's word. But no nation, including ours, has ever reflected the image of God intended in the beginning. No nation, including ours, has actually developed a just society. Even our nation is showing its animalistic nature ever more clearly. Fallen humanity cannot help but descend into beasthood. But the warning comes to the church as well. We Christians can follow the way of the beasts. We Christians can act quite beastly ourselves. In fact, the Apostle Paul warns us of the danger of acting like wild animals. In Galatians 5.15 we read, 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We use this kind of imagery to describe our conflicts sometimes, don't we? A wife complains that her husband is barking orders at her, metaphorically implying that he's a vicious dog seeking to manipulate her or intimidate her. Or a husband might refer to his wife as bullheaded, comparing her stubbornness to the way a bull prefers to stay put. Or we refer to our teenager's room as a pigsty, implying that our teenager's a dirty pig that likes to wallow around in filth. I also find it interesting that in this country, our two major political parties are commonly symbolized by animals. Some of you probably know the history of how those symbols develop, but just consider, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you see the Democratic donkey? In what ways do you think Democrats are like donkeys? And what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think, when you see the Republican elephant? In what ways do you think Republicans are like elephants? Do you tend to interpret the symbolism positive for the party of which you are a member and negative to the other guys? It seems that both symbols originally were intended to criticize the other party, but then the symbols stuck when the Democrats found something endearing and valuable about the donkey. And the Republicans found something endearing and valuable about the elephant. And both parties now seem to accept the symbolism for themselves to one degree or another. The Apostle Paul was reflecting on the state of the Galatian churches, which had been filled with some measure of conflict and dissension because of some teachers who had come in seeking to lead them astray from the true gospel. Paul will have none of that. While he wants the Galatians to stand firm against the false teaching... And he wants the false teachers to go away and experience God's judgment. He doesn't want to see the churches breaking into factions, disunified, arguing, biting, and devouring each other. Famously, Paul gives a host of one another commands to believers throughout his letters that positively characterize how Christians should treat each other. Here is one example where the one another command is a warning of how relating to each other can become beastly, degenerate into beastly, destructive treatment of each other. In the context, in Galatians 6, Paul is highlighting the nature of Christian freedom. And he perceives a danger that Christians, in the name of personal, individual freedom, could become hostile toward other believers. Christians can give in to an aggressive desire to protect oneself, to protect my perceived rights that leads us to being overly critical, gossiping about other Christians' behavior or preferences, and pridefully puffing out our chests about our own preferences. This has happened in churches around the country over the issues of wearing masks, restructuring gatherings, and attempting to respect governmental restrictions and guidance. And I'm grateful that we haven't had much of that here. But you must know that it has happened. But I do want to say a word of warning that will become ever more relevant as we continue through the book of Daniel. Let each of us beware of having a cherished perspective on how the future is supposed to unfold, so much so that we're willing to bite or devour those who might hold to different understandings. 
I hope I'm not being a little self-protective here in this warning. Painting a complete picture of what the Bible teaches about the future is complicated. And we need to extend grace to those who put the picture together differently. I will seek to be clear on what I believe. And I am not in any way suggesting that we shouldn't talk about these things. Some half-jokingly, I hope, say they're pan-millennialists because they believe it will all pan out in the end. (laughs) And the implication of that label seems to be that the details don't really matter that much. At one level, I agree. I want us to recognize that certain aspects of the future will remain unclear to us until they happen. But at another level, I strongly disagree. God has revealed certain clear things to us about the future in the Scriptures. And we should seek to understand what He has revealed to the best of our abilities, relying on the Spirit's illumination, in conversation with other believers, dead ones and alive ones. Talking about books. Relying on a heavy dose of Spirit-empowered humility. We don't want fights and quarrels about theology or politics. We do want healthy conversations about what the Bible says. Don't let the pendulum swing too far. To avoid devouring each other, surely we don't have to avoid talking to each other at all about these things. What does Paul command as the alternative to following the way of the beasts? Galatians 5, 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or as Jesus said repeatedly, love one another as I have loved you. You must recognize already that the one like a son of man is Jesus. So instead of following the way of the beasts, we follow the way of the son of man. The truly human way of self-sacrificial love for one another. The only way to truly reflect the image of God in this world is to be renewed in knowledge after the image of Jesus. To borrow a phrase from Colossians 3.10. To be truly human. To be delivered from our tendency to go the way of the beasts. We must be rescued from the power of the beasts. There is one human being who has lived a life untainted by beastly properties. And he laid down his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for our failures to live fully human lives. He lived as a man, but then died like an animal. A lamb slain on an altar, giving his life out of love for beastly sinners. He is the last Adam, and he has come to subdue the beast of sinful humanity and to execute the final defeat of the beast that talked like a human in the Garden of Eden. A serpent that led the first Adam and his bride into sin and ultimately to their death. And this sacrificed man has risen from the dead. Death could not hold the sinless man. And he has proven his victorious death, his sacrifice accepted by God in the place of sinners. And he now sits on his royal throne, exercising his sovereign rule, his everlasting dominion over the beastly kingdoms of this world. We now wait for his final execution of judgment against the beastly kingdoms when he returns. In the meantime, the only hope for human beings caught up in following the way of the beasts is to follow the way of Jesus, to trust Him, 
to believe that His death and resurrection were effective for you. To renounce permanently the way of the beasts in repentance. And to live forevermore as one of the saints. People set apart as holy for service to God and to the Lamb. Who would have thought that a Lamb could rescue the souls of men? Or as another older hymn says, And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Would you pray with me? Father, we give You thanks for the wonder that is the Bible as a whole. And passages like this stretch our ability to comprehend press us ever more deeply into reliance on the Spirit and on each other. Thank you that we come to your Word and we come to you not merely as individuals, but as a body of believers together, linked arm in arm, seeking to follow the way of your Son. Would you help us to do that ever more faithfully in the days to come? Instruct us, teach us, Most of all, Father, would you change us, transform us. We are not like the sun. We are too easily like the beasts. And we need your grace. We need your Spirit's power to pull us away and to keep us on the human path laid out for us by Jesus himself. So, Father, would you do that in each one of hearing my voice this morning? Thank you that the end is certain, that the plan is is on course and has not been redirected or in any ways diverted. You are moving all things to their appropriate end of bringing you utmost glory. We thank you that you've called us up into that great mission. Would you help us to pursue it faithfully, to seek your honor and glory in all things, and to draw people, to point people to your Son as their Savior, the only one who can rescue us from the way of the beasts. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.